everyone. My name is Reese Garlinski and this is Young History, episode 106 on Portugal. The capital of this country is Lisbon. And the name of this country goes back quite a while. So it starts because there was a port built for the Celtic god Calais, which was renamed the Portus Cale by the Romans. And eventually this would become the city of Porto. And then Portugal would accept this as the name of the nation for this long lasting port city. So Portugal is kind of the port city, which, um, Portugal is. So that is that. And then other facts are that in the early 1900s, Portugal was known as the most politically unstable nation on earth. There was many jokes made about it from Europe. And of course, this is to not include countries that were in a tougher scenario. But since the Europeans were the ones making the political cartoons and the Americans, they were definitely having their fun with Portugal. We'll get into why as we get to the 1900s. And on October 29th, 2020, German surfer Sebastian Studenter broke the record for the largest wave ever surfed. It was 86 feet tall and came off the coast of Praia, Portugal. Portugal is also the highest consumer of seafood in Europe and the fourth highest consumer in the world as of 2023. And surprisingly, Portugal actually introduced samosas to India and tempura to Japan. So yeah, there's a whole lot going on in this country. We've got a lot of history to get through and it's going to be fun. So I appreciate you guys being here. Definitely buckle up for the ride because we're getting to some of these countries that are very well covered. So to go from Azerbaijan to where I had to really dig deep to find history, this one, it was trying to sort through the history I needed and didn't need to say to get here. So hope you guys enjoy. And one more time, my name is Reese Karlinski. This is Young History, and this is Portugal. You guys enjoy. Origins begin in Mesolithic times, at least 10,000 years ago. During the Copper Age, the Bellbeaker culture was formed in Portugal and lasted from 2800 to 1800 BC. The reason I mentioned 10,000 BC before is because that's when the first traces of life were here, but more significant things come with the Bellbeaker culture that was happening here at this time. And of course, this culture was named for its bell-shaped pottery that was traceable across a lot of Europe at the time. They constructed some of the first forts in the area right alongside the Castro culture that lived in the land next and kind of rose as the bell-beaker culture fell. Now, the early tribes, such as the Iberians, Celts, Turdentani, and Aquitini, populated the land in the Iron Age from around 1200 to 600 BC. And eventually, the Celts would kind of break down into another people group called the Lusitanians, and they would form as the ancestors of the modern Portuguese people. They were a Western European people group that called the northern parts of the Iberian Peninsula their home, as well as areas of France that they were able to trek into from the Iberian Peninsula. And the term Lusophone is actually derived from the word Lusitanians, because a Lusophone is anyone who speaks Portuguese. And then... Right around the 900s to the 300s BC, we see Greeks and Phoenicians start to create trade outposts across the Iberian Peninsula, especially on the parts that face the Mediterranean. The late 300s saw the decline of the Phoenicians and Greeks in the region, and the rise of both Carthage and Rome as the new domineering maritime powers. Carthaginians began to establish larger control across the Iberian Peninsula from 245 to 218 BC. Rome invaded this area in 218 and continued battles here until 201 BC because of the fighting in the Second Punic War between Carthage and Rome. By the end of the Second Punic War, all of the former Iberian territories of Carthage now belonged to the Roman Empire. And then many more wars would be fought between the Romans and the Lusitanians. And this is where we get an early folk legend slash national hero from Portugal. He was a leader named Veratus 
who spearheaded the resistance to the Romans. He led many battles across the region and garnered some victories. However, he was murdered in betrayal by his allies that were bribed by the Romans. So this meant the resistance was now without a great leader and was too weak to stand up to Rome. So Rome was able to be victorious in the end. And by 117 CE, Rome had expanded all across the Mediterranean, including the entire Iberian Peninsula. Roman rule brought huge amounts of Roman architecture, style of government, and it was the Roman style of Latin that would eventually birth the language Portuguese. Most of all, it was during Roman rule that Christianity was first introduced to the region. This would all occur under the Roman provinces of Galicia and Lusitania, which were the ones that Portugal was contained within. Visigoths and Suebes began to move into the land as Rome's control on the region started to fall right around the 400 CE. These two Germanic people groups would battle for control of Iberia for a few hundred years, but eventually the Visigoths would reign supreme and control the entire peninsula. In 458 CE, the Visigoths were commissioned by the Romans to push other influences out of the peninsula. This was a deal accepted by their king Theodoric, and the Visigoths accepted this because they were very heavily Romanized. There were some people in the Visigoth lineage that fought alongside the Romans throughout history, and there was... Visigoth legionnaires, so the culture of Rome was definitely present in a lot of Visigothic kingdoms. So this alliance isn't that shocking when you really pull back the layers. And it would also be because of this that by the year 680, the Visigoths eventually converted to Catholicism, just like Rome did. Also during this time, there was a whole lot of internal struggle as famine, many diseases, and war began to tear the Visigoths apart and cause society to be very weakened. On top of this, the Umayyad Caliphate had spread across all of North Africa throughout the 600s, and that was a new looming threat. The Europeans and contemporary historians began using the term Moor or Moorish to refer to the Muslim people in North Africa. And at the very head of the Visigoth Kingdom during the 700s was King Roderick. He had to deal with many rebellions occurring in the north during the early 700s, and the fact that his kingdom was split up and there wasn't any stability would reveal a weakness in the year 711. That would be when Tariq Ibn Said, who was a great military general of the Umayyad Caliphate, would cross the Strait of Gibraltar with a force of 5,000 strong into the Iberian Peninsula. Over the next seven years, the Umayyads continued to push north through the forces of King Rajak and conquered almost all of the Iberian Peninsula. The very few surviving Visigoths took refuge in the northernmost part of the peninsula and tried to form a settlement and government of there for similar people to converge. Under Umayyad rule, the region became known as Al-Andalus, and this led to a lot of development across the peninsula, especially in architecture, and also during this time was a huge focus in both mathematics and science, and this is why Portugal kind of ends up advancing really quick with the rest of the Western European world, is because this caliphate that was in power here really pushed for math and science being made as of the utmost importance, even over some religious studies and things of that sort. And under this Muslim rule, there were still Christians and Jews that lived here. But under the caliphate, it became very clear that Muslims were the most preferred people. A tax known as the Jizayah tax was imposed on all non-Muslim residents under the caliphate. And Umayyad rule across the region was weakened eventually and replaced by the Abbasid caliphate. When the Abbasids were taking over, Umayyad rule across North Africa and eventually the Iberian Peninsula was weakened and eventually replaced by the Abbasid Caliphate. When the Abbasids were taking over this greater part of North Africa, one prince was able to escape and took refuge on the Iberian Peninsula. This was Abdul Rahman. In 756, 
Rahman declared himself the emir of the emirates of Cordoba. Cordoba was a city within the Iberian Peninsula, so he tried to make that as his stronghold to resist. And he also declared this as an independent region of the Umayyad Caliphate to stand up to the Abbasids. Eventually, the emirate fell and broke into the Tafiya states, which are a bunch of small regional kingdoms and provinces within the peninsula. And those would be separate from the one we're going to mention now, which is the Kingdom of Asturias, which was established after the Battle of Covadonga in 718. And this was the first major battle won by Christians in Iberia since the Visigoths lost many years before. And the Kingdom of Asturias would remain a stronghold of resistance throughout the early fighting here, and then would eventually become a very big stronghold that would last a long time. But eventually, the Kingdom of Asturias would start to fight back, and this would roll into a lot of major events. The most important of them being the Reconquista, or the reconquering of the Iberian Peninsula. A cry for help was sent out to any and all European states that would help push the Caliphate and its influence out of the Iberian Peninsula, and the Kingdom of Asturias actually united with other powers in the northwest of the peninsula to become the Kingdom of Leon Castile. From 868 to 873, Vamara Persh was able to lead the Reconquista to much success. He pushed south and took over the city of Porto, which is the namesake of Portugal. Then, King Alfonso VI summoned a knight from Burgundy named Henry and married him off to his daughter Teresa. This made Henry the Count of Portugal, and then Henry eventually had a son named Alfonso Henriques, who was named after his grandfather, Alfonso VI, and then named for his father, for Henriques. So, Alfonso Henriques would declare himself the first prince of Portugal in 1139 CE, and eventually he would ascend to the throne as king because of an internal clash with his family that placed him at the very top of it. So then he would be known as King Alfonso I of Portugal. And while this was happening in the western part of the peninsula, the Almoravids from North Africa were able to push out other powers in the southern Iberian Peninsula and consolidated power over the Tafia states. Then, the Almohads replaced them by 1143 CE. Alfonso I united his army with the army of the Second Crusade and pushed the remaining forces out of Portugal and took over Lisbon, the eventual capital of this nation. Pope Alexander also recognized Alfonso as king in 1179. And different Portuguese kings that ruled from 1150 to 1249, joining the fight against the Almohads, it eventually established the full kingdom of Portugal with its modern borders, and by 1249, the last Muslim exclave had been eradicated by the Portuguese. Early in the 1200s, many systems were ratified to help push forward the advancement of the country, it consolidated the power for the king, and it started to eliminate any internal issues that were keeping the country from being a strong kingdom that was on par with the rest of those in Western Europe. And then we jump till 1385, where Castile and Portugal came into conflict over the succession of the Portuguese throne. King Juan of Castile had a claim to the throne through his bloodline, so he invaded Portugal, which started the Battle of Algebarota. This is one of the most significant battles in the history of Portugal because it saw 7,000 Portuguese soldiers line up to defend against the better-armed and better-manned fighting force for Castile, which was as big as 20,000 men. Within just a few hours, the outnumbered Portuguese force was able to defeat the army of Castile like it was nothing. The House of Aviz family would take power from this point until 1580. This ended King Juan's attempts to encroach on the region and it also resulted in the Treaty of Windsor. The Treaty of Windsor was signed May 9th, 1386 between Portugal and England and it connected them as allies. This is still a strong alliance to this day and makes it the longest recognized alliance agreement in the world. And this victory over 
its neighbors, as well as a strong alliance with the Brits, had now pushed this idea of expanding into the heads of the Portuguese. So, this is when Prince Henry the Navigator, a very famous Portuguese prince, sponsored and helped fund some of the earliest navy expeditions to Africa from Western Europe. This was the onset of many great Portuguese explorers who pioneered the navigation of Africa, namely Diego Cal, Bartholomew Diaz. This began the Age of Discovery. Then, the truly unbelievable voyages began under Pedro Alvarez Cabral, who sailed in Brazil. Eventually, Brazil would become Portugal's best creation ever, not only to the Portuguese, but to the world, because it is one of the most populated countries in the world, a center of culture, and is actually the place where more people speak Portuguese than anywhere else, even over Portugal. And then there was Vasco da Gama, who sailed to India and started Portugal's engagement in the spice trade by opening some settlements there. Then we saw Amerigo Vespucci, who sailed for Spain in 1500 and was the first European to map out the New World as a new continent and not Asia. And the reason we mention him is because he did sail under both the Spanish and Portuguese flag. It is debated a little bit back and forth over whose flag he was sailing under when he made this great discovery that the Americas are the Americas and not Asia. They didn't wrap around the world that quick. It's just a new continent no one knew about. And then one of the craziest ones is Antonio de Malta, who sailed all the way from Portugal to Japan. And this is when not only does Portugal start to influence Japan, like we saw in the beginning where I said that they introduced tempura, but it's also the only country that gets to Japan and is the only one that trades with Japan for hundreds of years because Japan was so focused on isolationism that they didn't want anyone, but Portugal gets all the way here and it kind of impresses the Japanese, so they stick with it. After this, Portugal started in the slave trade and also wanted to grow its financial investments in the regions, so it started creating sugar plantations. And on top of this, they did become the country that started the Atlantic slave trade. They did this for labor forces, a bunch of usual excuses, but no matter how great these discoveries are, discoveries in quotes, however you see it, it does come with that dark, dirty price of it started the slave trade, which is hundreds of years of suffering for millions of people around the world. And I think that was different between Portugal and Spain is because right around this time, Spain is starting to send Christopher Columbus and its other guys across the world to try and figure things out and establish colonies. But the thing with Portugal is that it doesn't have the population or strength that Spain had. So it wasn't able to get these giant land empires going the way Spain was, where Spain conquered most of Central and North America, at least in the West. Portugal much more focused on little ports all over the world. That's why there was a bunch of ports in India and in Indonesia. And they had ports across Brazil and a little bit of land holding. But outside of Mozambique and Angola, it was very hard for them to go very deep inland because they didn't have the manpower for it. And the thing that is interesting is the fall of Constantinople actually causes a shift in trade across Europe because for hundreds of years, even since the fall of Rome, it was the Eastern Byzantines, which were Christian and got along with Europe very well, at least overall. So trade could go straight through the Black Sea into Constantinople. It could go straight through the middle of the Mediterranean in through Constantinople to get wherever. But now that the Ottomans had taken over under Mehmed II, Europe didn't want to have to trade with the Ottomans or go through them or deal with their tariffs or anything like that. And of course, there was just the general distaste between the religions of Islam and Christianity, respectively, the Ottoman Turks versus the Europeans. So Portugal ends up becoming a really major port, no pun intended, because now 
no matter where in Europe you were, you would kind of want to loop to different parts of the Mediterranean that were not connected to the Ottoman Empire. So no longer would you go to the Balkan Peninsula or anything around there. You'd go through Italy. If you were coming from the north, you'd probably hit Portugal to avoid a bunch of land travel. So Portugal definitely benefits from this. The Treaty of Tordesillas was agreed upon in 1494 between Spain and Portugal. It split the influence of these two nations down the middle, right across the New World. And to overgeneralize, it pretty much stated that Portugal would get everything east of the Guyanas in South America and Africa, and Spain would get the rest of the Western Hemisphere, which included all the Americas, Mexico, and many of the Caribbean islands. One of the most famous Portuguese explorers would also pop up around this time. This would be Ferdinand Magellan, who became the first captain in the world to lead a ship in circumnavigating the entire Earth. But he was killed in the Philippines when he was fighting against some of the native populations there. But it was his maps and his guidance that got his crew all the way to that point, And they were able to complete the trip without him. So he is recognized as a captain who led the first circumnavigation of the Earth. The 1500s would be categorized by the spreading of the Portuguese language, influence, and culture to many parts of the world. Competition between Portugal and the Ottomans over controlling trade in the Indian Ocean was very common. This all led to a lot of prosperity for the Portuguese, but eventually internal strife rose once again, and this caused the growth of Portugal's empire to slow down, even though Portugal had established holdings across the world at this point. That issue I was talking about would be another succession crisis. This was happening in Portugal in 1578 when King Sebastian I died fighting in Morocco, and he did not leave a clear heir, so this opened up an opportunity for Spain. King Philip II of Spain took his chance and launched an invasion on Portugal to unite the two kingdoms. He had a very small but significant claim to the throne as an heir, so he was able to successfully take over Portugal and create the Iberian Union in the year 1580, and this union would last until 1640. It saw both Portugal and Spain under one crown. Around the 1620s, the autonomy of Portugal was removed from the Union. Portugal was made into a province of Spain, and the nobles were stripped of their power and influence under King Philip IV. This started a time period of great struggle for the Portuguese Empire because of the issues the nation was facing at home. Because of the fact that Spain and Portugal were kind of now seen as one country, that means Portugal inherited all of Spain's enemies, namely the Dutch. And this would show how important it is because the Dutch start to annex territories across the world from the Portuguese. The most prominent ones were the ones in Indonesia and India so that the Dutch can get control of the spice trade. And this infuriated both the people and the nobles of Portugal, and this led to the Restoration Wars. Joao IV of the Berganza House led the Portuguese Revolution of 1640 against Spain. This would be the official start of the Restoration Wars. Portugal would call upon its wealth in Brazil to help fund the war, and after much fighting and many vicious battles, Portugal was victorious in 1668. The subsequent treaty was signed and officially recognized Portugal as independent. Joao IV ascended to the throne and became John IV of Portugal as king. This would be in the dynasty of the Berganza family that reigned all the way until 1910. Gold was also discovered in Brazil in the same year, and this instantly caused the Portuguese economy to skyrocket. And the next ruler, John V, was an enlightened despot that ruled from 1706 to 1750. He expanded the empire brought the country a huge economic upturn, and started many beautification projects in Portugal. He built the Palace of Mafra and other stunning landmarks across the nation. In 1755, though, there was a massive earthquake. It hit Lisbon and would have been categorized as almost a 9 on the Richter scale, which would make it one of the strongest earthquakes in human history. It resulted in thousands of deaths and the city being nearly leveled. The Marquis of Pombal, who was an economic reformist that practically controlled the nation at this point, 
implemented policies to help the nation recover. He instigated very hard tax policies that helped the nation pay for its damages, but this made him very unpopular with the upper class, so he was eventually annexed for his actions. The royal Ajuda Palace would eventually be constructed by the royal family, namely Maria I, who took power after the Marquis of Pembal. Then the Napoleonic Wars happened, and they had an extreme effect on Portugal. Napoleon requested that Portugal stop trading with Britain, but Portugal refused. This led to Napoleon invading in 1807 and starting the Peninsular Wars. This war was brutal for the Portuguese and resulted in a great damage to the infrastructure, economy, and the death of thousands. Lisbon was occupied for a time, but the British arrived to assist Portugal and kept the entire nation from being taken over. The royal family also felt the pressure of this war and fled to Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. The presence of the royal family here caused the infrastructure of Rio to rise greatly, and the royal family stayed here throughout the entire period of the Napoleonic War and did not return to Portugal until 1821. And because of the fact that it's multiple years they're out here, a lot of infrastructure development and money comes into Rio de Janeiro, and we're going to see what that means in a sec. So, Napoleon was unable to defeat Portugal in any lasting manner, but the effects on Portugal were still very deep, and the war left the country impoverished and unstable. And it would become very clear that the royals had a huge effect on the Brazilians because independence was declared in Brazil in 1822. This affected Portugal because not only did the gold in Brazil stop coming in, but the money from the Portuguese sugar plantations also stopped. Then, there was a constitution later in the year 1822 to place limited power on the monarchy in wake of Brazil's independence, and Brazil became equal to Portugal on paper, and this upset many Portuguese. Tensions rose in 1826 when a charter was given that allowed for a monarchy to have some more of its power back. This leads directly into the liberal wars, which were fought from 1828 to 1834. This happened when Miguel I declared himself an absolute monarch, and his brother united the liberal forces against him. The liberals ended up winning the war, but there was no stability as the liberals split into two camps, the radicals and moderates. The radicals wanted the 1822 constitution that heavily limited the monarchy in all ways back, but moderates were okay with the charter of 1826 that allowed for a powerful monarch as long as there was checks. Fighting between these two went on until 1836 when a weak constitution was signed. But things would actually change under the rotativismo system. This was introduced in 1856, and the moderates became known as the regenerators, and the radicals became known as the progressives. This system would see the two parties alternate power under their monarchy every few years, and this is also the system that helped end Portuguese slave trade in Brazil. Portugal started to advance heavily, especially under Pedro V. He was the backbone of the railroad being established across Portugal. The scramble for Africa occurred in late 1800s when European powers sprinted and struggled to use their power across the African continent. Portugal consolidated power in the Pink Map region of Africa. This was the region between Portuguese Mozambique and Angola. The reason this is significant is because a conflict arose with Britain because the land in between the two nations was something the British wanted very bad. The Portuguese laid claim to it, but the British wanted to build a cross-continental railroad from Cairo, Egypt, to Cape Town, South Africa, which were all British. And this heavily soured the relations between the two, which led to the British ultimatum. This would be given to Portugal in 1890 over this land, and Britain was willing to give up pretty much anything in order to get this land, so Portugal felt very strong-armed, and it greatly upset the citizens. And by give up anything, I don't mean give up land. I mean the British were willing to fight for this. They were willing to give up lives and years of time because they wanted this area. So... This comes back to Portugal because the Portuguese citizens refused to accept that this colonial aspiration would drag them into a war and further weaken the economy. So protests actually started to break out nationwide. 
And internally, of course, there were still economic and banking issues across the nation, especially in the 1890s. And the king made moves to adjust this, but they simply didn't work. Then the king was assassinated in 1908, and this led to even more instability. But people were done asking questions, done waiting for wars to be fought, over thrones. They were done having things forced upon them. So on October 5th, 1910, the October Revolution began, and hundreds of thousands of Portuguese people began protesting, and they actually overthrew the monarchy and made the country into a republic. 1911 saw Republican victory, which can actually be seen represented on Portugal's flag because the Republican colors are red and green. But, of course, the country was still in a very deep economic struggle. This wasn't helped at all by the fact that Portugal had to fight in World War I when it allied itself with the Allied powers and provided troops to fight in the war. Portugal didn't see actual fighting on its land throughout the First World War, at least not much, but there were still struggles as the failing economy and widespread protests gripped the nation throughout this period. And all of this came to a head in 1926 when, during the Winter War period, the military attempted to overthrow the government in a coup. Antonio Oscar de Fragasso Carmona was able to stop this revolution and become president thereafter. However, he faced great economic strife within the nation and eventually handed off that power to Antonio de Oliveira Salazar. In 1932, Salazar was named the prime minister and began to reshape the country. He wrote the constitution to start the new state of Portugal. He also began using railroad construction and other methods to stabilize and strengthen the economy. Top of this, he made the GDP quadruple during his reign, but things were not all sunshine and rainbows. It was very clear he used a doctrine of censorship against the media and employed a secret police to eliminate the opposition. Eliminate often includes killing, beating, and deporting anyone who challenged him. And this rolled right into World War II, which saw Portugal remain neutral throughout the war, but still played both sides as trade went back and forth between the Allied powers and the Axis powers. However, there was one special deal signed with the British that allowed them to use Portuguese air bases to launch attacks against the Axis powers. And post-war, Portugal was a founding member of NATO in 1949 and also was an early member of the European Free Trade Association, which they joined in 1960. Marcelo Caetano rose to power in 1968. However, he was removed from power during the Carnation Revolution. This occurred in 1974. It was a peaceful revolution that had absolutely no violence, not a single gunshot or anything of that sort. The revolution was enacted to cancel the power of government that was rising very rapidly, and also wanted to challenge Portugal's use of troops in Africa, because people did not see a reason for people to be dying there anymore just to restrict African people's rights. It resulted in not only the forming of the Third Republic of Portugal, but also the withdrawal of Portuguese forces from its colonies in Africa and elsewhere. Within a few years, Mozambique and Al within a few years of this happening, the African colonies of Angola and Mozambique declared independence from Portugal. And this is when the Third Republic started to really focus internally and wanted to consolidate power, democratize the government, all of those things that they could now put all of their focus into. Francisco Sá Carneiro was the founder of the Socialist Party but died in a plane crash, and this allowed the Social Democrats to take power by the end of 1975. And since this point... Politics has been dominated by two parties, the Social Democrats and the Socialist Party. And surprisingly, it's actually the Social Democrats that are the conservative ones and the Socialists that are the left ones. Just odd names. And the Constitution of 1976 was signed, and it established a democratic republic, and the Constitution finally guaranteed political freedoms, separation of powers, and social rights. Economic challenges started to grow as the country saw high inflation rates and employment, and the government initiated economic reforms, and pursued international loans to stabilize the economy. 
And all that stuff is why Portugal had that joke against it for being the most unstable country throughout all the 1900s because of the fact that literally from the 1910 overthrowing of the monarchy, it's just chaos until the 80s. There's revolutions and there's authoritarian regimes and all sorts of things like that. So it's very, very tense here, but things end up getting quite better. European integration started to occur throughout the late 70s and 80s. Portugal applied for European Economic Community Membership in 1977, and it was accepted in 1986, which made it very intertwined with the rest of the European economy. And because of this, there was a lot of growth that came from the founding of this organization because now foreign investment was coming in. And the Treaty of Maastricht was ratified by Portugal in 1992 and actually established the European Union and was the groundwork for the euro being spread continent-wide. Later in this decade, Portugal actually hosted the World Exposition in Lisbon, which was known as the Expo 98. This event marked a turning point in the city's urban development, including the revitalization of the waterfront area, which had been destroyed by the earthquake in years past, as well as different issues from wars and mismanagement under bad politicians. In 1999, Portugal handed over its last overseas territory of Macau to China, which ended its colonial presence in Asia forever. The euro was officially adopted in Portugal on January 1st, 2002, and this helped the tourism industry develop because now Portugal was using the euro, which was connected to the rest of Europe, at least the western part, and now people were now in <clears throat> people were now becoming more inclined to visit Europe now that they could use the same currency all over the place. And it really started to develop from there. It drew in foreign investment. It's kind of like a thing where if you're investing in Portugal as another European Union nation, you're kind of investing yourself because it's just going to help the overall economy and help the strength of the euro. But things were still not all great as there were still some economic challenges throughout the 2000s. There was high public debt and economic growth wasn't going great. But that kind of changed when Portugal actually held the presidency of the EU in 2007. In 2007. This actually changed, though, when Portugal was actually able to hold the presidency of the EU for 2007 because it rotates between different countries. And they also benefited from getting structural funds, which are ones that come from the EU to help develop education, infrastructure, and regional projects that happen in a nation. Kind of, as I said before, you invest in one, you're kind of investing all of them. So the common saying is you're only as strong as your weakest link on your team. So Portugal was definitely seen as that for a long time within the EU, and they didn't want to deal with that anymore. So the other European nations start to help fund them. And it starts going pretty well, but then, of course, the financial crisis happens in 2008, and struggle really lasts for them until 2013 because it was just hard to get anything going during that time. But they were given a bailout package by the European Union to help stabilize the economy and handle the banks, all that. But this came with a kind of underlying agreement, which was as part of the bailout agreement, Portugal implemented austerity measures, which included tax increases, spending cuts, and labor market reforms so that their economy would be stabilized internally rather than constantly getting its hand held by the European Union. During this whole economic crisis, the country was led by Jose Socrates, who was a member of the Socialist Party. And in 2011, a center-right coalition government led by Pedro Passos Coelho took office. And things were starting to shift good, but then there were a lot of bad things that happened. One of the major ones being in 2012, a journalist was arrested under the clauses of defamation. And this was seen as corrupt and a way to silence the press. Since this point, many protests have called for this journalist to be freed and for Supreme Court justices to be tried for corruption because there has been some allegations of them being paid off. In 2015, the left-wing parties formed a coalition government to challenge the coalition of right-wing governments. And this coalition was led by the Socialist Party, 
supported by the left bloc and the Portuguese Communist Party. And they were able to win this election, placing Marcelo Rebelo de Sousa on the presidential seat. But he saw struggles right away as Portugal faced devastating wildfires in their rural areas in 2016, caused a lot of destruction throughout these regions, and was very tough for people to get through. And in the 2020 rebellion, Sosa was re-elected as the president of Portugal. And that pretty much gets us to the present, where Portugal has grown into one of the most developed countries on Earth. After a long period as the most corrupt nation in Europe throughout the 1900s, this nation has done a lot of work to consolidate the government and bring rights back to the people. As of today, Portugal is seen as very politically free, despite the accusations of corruption that have occurred over the last two decades. Portugal is one of the most visited countries on Earth, with an extremely stunning landscape that has come from its storied history. The Portuguese diaspora has been felt worldwide, as it is the sixth most widespoken language on Earth, mostly because of Brazil. This nation started the age of discovery, and its impact on the world cannot be understated. Countries around the world have Portugal to thank for much of their history, culture, and current engagements. And that gets us to the end where I always like to kind of do a takeaway or mindset. And with Portugal, that is never stay in something you aren't being treated right in. Now, that is very niche. And I say this for Portugal because of two things. I say it because of the Iberian Union, and I say it because of the way they've stood up over and over against monarchies and dictators that have put them down. In many scenarios, they've been in a case where they've been struggling, they've been abused, they were the ones that were put upon, they were put in a box, all these things. But they never gave up. There was never a point where they stopped fighting. There was never a point when the Portuguese just threw their hands up and said, all right, this is fine. We're not going to fight against this. I guess we're not Portuguese anymore. Never, ever happened. They've always fought for what they wanted. They've always fought for their own representation, their own country, their own land, all sorts of things like that. And I say you could very easily draw that line to yourself, where despite, you know, in this case, Portugal getting some benefits, development from Spain, development from Rome, a lot of power and money coming to their country from being under a monarchy, all sorts of things like that. But they never wanted it because it wasn't right for them. They weren't being treated right. It didn't feel good. They didn't love it. I say do that with you. If you don't love it, if you don't feel good, if you don't feel like it's right for you, if you don't feel like you're getting the right benefits, if you feel like you're being abused, any of those things in any of your relationships, work, school, a club you're in, your romantic relationship, your friendships, your parents, any of those, do your absolute best to just push out of it. Push hard. Get it done. And you will. You will get it done. Because if you continue to choose yourself and choose what's going to be best for you and grow and try your best not to hurt people on the way out, you're eventually going to see that you're going to be in a happier place out of relationships you don't need to be. And that's what Portugal has done for hundreds of years, and it's what you can do for the rest of your life. So only put yourself in a position to be respected in your relationship, no matter what that relationship is. And with that, that is where I bid you guys adieu. I'm already late for work, but this is much more important to me. So we're doing this and I loved it. Portugal was very fun to research. As I said, a much more well covered country than some of the other ones we've done recently. And you know, it's nice to break it up. It's fun to get back to Europe, all sorts of things like that. So I'm very glad all of you are here. I'm very glad you listened. I definitely hope you got something out of it, no matter what you got going on but i definitely hope you're well so you guys are the best and one more time my name is reese garlinski this is young history and that was portugal you guys have a good one